Beloved, I have been told that opposites attract. Do they? I would, I would say some do. Peas and carrots. Resistance training and cardio. Yin and yang. Uh, some do. Uh, some do not. Some opposites do not attract, though. Fire and ice. Hot and cold, good and bad. There are some contrasts where there is no middle ground. You see, some contrasts are subtle and complementary. Some are great and sharp. And in Scripture, there are tremendously significant great and sharp contrasts where there is no middle ground. There is no spiritual Switzerland. Uh, Even we could think of the hot and cold example I gave before. As you may know, the Laodicean church, the apostate church of the seven churches, in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus said to them, I would wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. There are great and sharp contrasts in Scripture. Blessing and curse, promise and warning, hope and judgment, life and death, salvation and destruction. In the context of where we're at in our journey through 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we saw there is rapture and reunion and there is the day of the Lord. There is the distinction, the great contrast between either being caught up in the air or being consumed on earth. And then now as we even come into our passage, which is verses 6 through 11 of chapter 5, there is night and day. There is light and darkness, awake and asleep. There is sober and drunk. And in all of this, there is a us and them. In all of scripture, and certainly powerfully so here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, the us and them, this is not an us and them where we sit on some high lofty perch and look down. We realize that the only reason we are part of the us rather than the them is by the sovereign grace and mercy of God. As we have seen in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and forward, the saved will be raptured and reunited with the Lord. And we have seen the unsaved in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, they will suffer God's unrestrained wrath. And neither will experience the other. Never shall the twain meet. And ultimately, eternally, the greatest contrast is heaven is the land of eternal light and hell is the land of eternal darkness. Beloved, please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, the needs of this church, this young church, only several months old, yet they're a mature church, they're an example church. Their needs are personal. And so Paul's answer to their Thessalonian needs was theological and personal, excuse me, theological and pastoral, to their personal needs. As we would read this, God's answer to your personal needs and my personal needs is also theological and pastoral. Again, our passage is verses 6 through 11, but let me begin reading in verse 1 to remind ourselves from whence we have come so far. First Thessalonians 5 and First Thessalonians, that's a tongue twister, First Thessalonians 5 and verse 1. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. 
But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. So what the Apostle Paul has done in the first five verses of chapter 5, he affirmed who the Thessalonians are, and then he proceeds in verses 6 through 11 to tell them how they should behave. He affirmed who they are, and now he appeals as to how they should behave. And when you and I read this some 2,000 years later, God has told us, has told you who you are, and now he continues with how we should live, how you should live. And what we have here is we have in these last portion, these last verses of this eschatological portion where Paul is dealing with the topic of the certain second coming of Jesus, even in the context of the one powerful element of the day of the Lord. He gives us four words of encouragement and edification. And we take this directly from verse 11, the final appeal, the final exhortation that he wraps up the entire passage with. with. The four words of encouragement and edification are your quality, your security, your destiny, and our responsibility. And the idea here, beloved, is that how is, you should recognize, we should understand how we think about tomorrow will affect how we live today. And at the broad level, God does not want any of us, no matter where we are at in our relationship to Christ. He does not want us to be surprised then, nor does he want us in Christ to live uncontrolled now. So let's look at this first word of encouragement and edification centered around the certain return of Christ, namely your quality. Again, he has talked about who we are in Christ in the first five verses. Now he tells us how we should live. And simply put, how we should live does flow from who we are. And we are people of the day and light. We are alert and sober. We're not stupefied and drunk. Look at verse 6. This connecting phrase from what he had given back in the first five verses, he says, so then. It's a little two-word Greek phrase. It only appears in Paul's writing in the New Testament. And basically, it describes a logical and necessary conclusion, a logical and necessary conclusion to who we are, namely as sons of light, people of the day. He says, so then, let us not sleep as others do. And this is a great contrast. Who are the others here? The others here are the pagans, the unsaved. Uh, The day of the Lord we saw last week is coming for the dwellers of darkness, the night people, the non-brethren. 
These are the outsiders back in chapter 4, verse 12. The rest in chapter 4, verse 13. And the they and them in contrast to the we and us. The they and them of verse 3. And as I said before, this is repeating myself even here this morning, but the fact that we are blessed by God's mercy to be in the we and the us rather than the they and them is not a source of pride. It is a source of thanksgiving to the Lord for the newness of life we enjoy in Christ. Also, you may wonder here, he says, so then let us not sleep as others do. You may remember that back in chapter 4, he used imagery of being asleep and awake, a people in Christ. Those who are asleep are the believers who have died, and those who are awake are the believers who are still living. But what he's doing here is he's speaking in a, he's using different imagery, and you might think, well, is he, is he splitting the metaphor? Is he taking the same metaphor with two different meanings? Well, actually, there are two different words in the Greek that are translated as sleep, if that helps any. And what he is doing here is he is speaking metaphorically when he's talking about sleep and awake, sober and drunk. He's not talking about the literal sleeping and the literal awake. He's describing one who is asleep as one who has moral laxity. This is spiritual lethargy. The one who sleeps as the others do, as the unsaved do, this is one who is overcome with spiritual stupor and spiritual deep sleep, metaphorically speaking. The unsaved are characterized by spiritual sluggishness. Now, in the context here, there is a specific context, again, of the certain return of Christ and the certain coming judgment. So the one who is asleep, the one who is spiritually sluggish, is living as if there is no judgment. This is the thinking, the dynamic, well, if I can get away with it, then I'm going to go for it. If I can break this law, if I can violate this rule without getting caught, then there is no restraint. I'm going to get what I want, how I want to get it, irregardless of what's right and what's wrong. This is what is behind, I don't know if they still use uh, the phrase YOLO, you only live once. This is behind that YOLO, you only live once mentality. Or going back a decade or two beyond that, he who dies with the most toys wins. You see, the problem is this, if one does not understand the beginning, if one doesn't believe the beginning and has no concern for the end, then the only reality is now. And there are multiple examples in life of this. And there are multiple examples even in Scripture. Uh, You may remember in Luke chapter 12, Jesus gave a parable. He gave a story of slaves. There were faithful and sensible slaves, and then there were faithless and senseless slaves. The faithless and senseless slaves, when the master was away, They said in their heart, he's not coming back anytime soon, so I'm going to do what I want to do with the resources he gave me and have no concern for his return. And of course, in Jesus' story, the master came back and his judgment fell upon those faithless, senseless slaves. Or you can think of the virgins that I've even mentioned recently in Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25. Ten virgins, five were wise. They were anticipating the coming of the bridegroom, but there were five that were foolish, and they didn't have oil for their lamps. 
And when the bridegroom returned, they appealed to the, the five foolish virgins, appealed to the five wise virgins to give them some of their oil, but they couldn't do that. And so they were outside in the darkness. Now, that is describing the dwellers of the darkness. But what we have now is we have a great contrast. This is the first of three great contrasts in our, three great contrasts in our passage, all marked by that little English word, but. He says in the middle of verse 6, look at the text, but let us be alert, be awake, be watchful. Literally, this is one who chases sleep away. This is one who throws off his drowsiness. He's using this picture of a drowsy sluggard at the physical level to picture the greater spiritual reality. Now, the Federal Aviation Administration has requirements for pilots to get a sufficient amount of sleep. This is actually wording from their publication. A minimum of an eight-hour rest period is required after 12 hours of work by a pilot, end quote. Because they understand that if the pilot is half asleep in the chair, that spells great danger. Beloved, dear friend, in the same way what God is saying here through the Apostle Paul is we need to be spiritually awake and spiritually alert. This is what the Lord Jesus himself said to John when John was seeing the vision and getting the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus. In Revelation 3, verses 2 and 3, Jesus commanded, he said, wake up. And that's, by the way, the same Greek word as be alert in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Jesus says, Watch this. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. And then again, later on, Revelation 16, verse 15, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Blessed is the one who is alert, as Paul says here. But he doesn't stop there. Paul says, but let us be alert and sober. Be alert and sober. Literally, not drunk. Metaphorically, this means being rational and restrained. It means being self-controlled, even keeled and level-headed. It means being calm, collected, and well-balanced. And all of these descriptions I just gave come from the word that Paul uses here. But, beloved, all of these describe what Christians should behave like. If we are to take the good news, the gospel, to a lost and dying world, we need to be impacted by that. We need to show them that we have a faith and a trust, that we not only believe what God says in his word, but we live in a manner that flows out of it, not perfectly on the side of eternity, but by God's grace and mercy, growing. At the end of his life, Paul, will, while he's in his second Roman imprisonment, awaiting execution, Paul will tell young Timothy these words, 2 Timothy 4, 5, You, Timothy, be sober in all things. And Paul's not telling Timothy, don't get drunk. There are plenty of injunctions throughout Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, to not get drunk. But that's not the picture here. That is a physical sin, but the spiritual sin of not being sober, of being spiritually drunk in sin and self-indulgence is an even greater danger. That's why Paul tells Timothy, be sober in all things. Peter, when he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor, 
1 Peter 1, 13, he says, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. And then in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Uh, The same coupling that Paul has here. Beloved, what this means for you and me is we are to keep free from the stupefying effects of sin and self-indulgence. Now, as we continue on in verses 7 and 8, Paul brings out more great contrasts of what we've already seen. In verse 7, he talks about the dwellers of darkness, the night people. And in verse 8, he talks about the sons of light, the day people. Uh, First, verse 7, the dwellers of darkness, the night people, he says... For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Now, he's speaking of a physical reality. The majority of humanity sleeps at night. Most drunkards get drunk at night. As the sin intensifies, some, intensifies, some drunkards do get drunk during the day, but this is a reality. So what Paul is talking about here in verse 7 is not figurative. It's factual. It's just an axiomatic truth from the physical world that he's using to illustrate and drive home the necessity of the greater importance of the spiritual world. I remember, I think I even shared this recently, but I'll do it again. My beloved Margie used to tell our children, nothing good happens after midnight. What Paul is saying here is, have daytime behavior. Don't have nighttime behavior. And if you need a further illustration, go talk to an emergency room doctor or an emergency room trauma nurse that works at night that will be able to tell you physical horror stories of the outcome of sinful behavior. Or from a biblical standpoint, there are many biblical examples. Samson's hair was cut by Delilah when he was asleep. Noah was abused by Ham when Noah was in a drunken stupor, when he was in a drunken sleep. So, beloved, that is not how that is, what is characteristic of people that don't know Christ. But for those who have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus, we ought not to live that way. The reality is that sons of the light, daughters of the light, can exhibit and live with nighttime behavior. But that should not be the case. But then we come to the second great contrast marked by that little word but in verse 8, where we see the sons of light, the day people. He says, look at verse 8, but since we are of the day, let us be sober. Let our behavior be daytime behavior. Beloved, we must, in Christ, for God's glory, for the blessing of one another, and for our, our outreach to Loved neighbors, family, and friends that don't know him. We must be and remain alert to the challenges of the day, the struggles of the day, and the responsibilities of the day. In Christ, we lay aside dreamy carelessness, and we embrace decisive readiness. We say no to moral negligence and say yes to moral awareness. Now, Let's take a step back here and remind ourselves of the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were not guilty of this sin of not being concerned, not being alert or aware of the coming in Christ. In fact, if we can say anything about them, they were overly watchful. 
You may remember back in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, there Paul gave them a subtle kind of reminder and refining word because some of them, they were excitedly awaiting, we even know from chapter 1, verse 10, they were with anticipation awaiting the coming of Christ, but to the point that they were beginning to shirk some of their duties and responsibilities. Why should I continue to go to work if I think Jesus is coming in the next day or two or week? What what does it matter? So Paul gives them a gentle correction here in the first letter, and he will give them a much stronger rebuke in 2 Thessalonians. So they were, if anything, overly watchful. But what Paul does here is he does not, of course, say cease watching altogether. Rather, have a balanced lifestyle. So it is interesting. It's almost paradoxical. We are right in the middle of these great contrasts where there is no middle ground. At the same time, though, there are ways in which we are to, by God's grace and mercy, walk that line between two different things. We are to eagerly anticipate and look for and pray for and say to Jesus, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. And at the same time, we live as though he's not coming for years and years and years. Both are true. Both are responsibilities. So what Paul does here is he calls the Thessalonians to repent from wild alarm and panic And he calls them to repent to live balanced lives. And did you get what I said there? Very often, and I even am guilty of this myself, when I think of the word repent, I more often than not will think of repenting from something. But we need to remember we repent from something to something. We're headed in one direction, and repentance is a 180-degree turn, so we're turning away from one thing, and we're turning towards another, and that is precisely what Paul does here. And beloved, what that means for you and me some 2,000 years later, when it comes to crises, this means we're not reactionary. We're not given over to panic and hysterica, hysteria, and multiple examples through history, even from recent history. We can think of Y2K. We can think of COVID. But the point here, beloved, is God's people, people of light, day people, alert people, sober people. We stay calm. We stay self-possessed and even healed. And Paul will give similar words. He had a similar thinking in his brain when he wrote to the immature church in Corinth at the very end of of the letter, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, Paul says, watch this, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. The first phrase he said there again, be alert. Beloved, what that means for you and for me, we keep our lamps burning and we keep our loins girded, using biblical imagery. Keep your head, do your duty, Fulfill your ministry. Be calm in heart, steady in gait, and sane in mind. Be calm in heart, steady in gait, and sane in mind. We have our shoulder to the plow and our eye on the sky. Both are true. So, beloved, that is God's word of encouragement and edification to you, your quality. The second great word here is your security. The British theologian A.T. Robertson said, and this is in the context of A.T. Robertson thinking of Paul's mind as we go from verse 7 to the end of verse 8. He said this, The idea of watchfulness brings the figure of a sentry on guard and armed to Paul's mind. End quote. 
So what we have here at the end of verse 8 and verse 9 is be an alert soldier. You see, spiritual armor is necessary to ward off spiritual attack. Look at the end of verse 8. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul here brings out two of the elements, two of the pieces of armor of the six that he will expand on in even greater detail in Ephesians. This is Roman military armor. And the first one, the breastplate, the breastplate protects the vital organs, it protects the heart. And what he's using it here is this is being spiritually armored up and protected against the attacks of temptation, against the lure of darkness. And the real, the physical breastplate would have a hard side on the outside and would have a soft side on the inside. The hard side of the breastplate here, spiritually speaking, is faith. It's I believe God. I believe the black and white truth that God gives in his word. This is the faith that hears the word of God, that believes the word of God, and that trusts the promises of God. This is believing God's word and behaving God's way with daytime behavior. That's the hard side of the breastplate. It's faith. I believe God. The soft side of the breastplate is I love God. Because God has first loved me, I therefore love him. And because I love him, I love now my brother and sister in Christ. And this will even be picked up when we get to the final application in verse 11. And as a helmet, as a helmet, the breastplate protects the heart. The helmet protects the head. This was a hard helmet that would have cheek guards that would come down over uh, the back of their neck to protect the neck. And the helmet would have a brilliant plume or crest because the helmet, the helmet of the Roman soldier had two purposes. It was protective and it was decorative. And the protective part, that's a no-brainer. It protects the brain. It protects the skull. But the decorative part, well, I mean, what, what's the purpose of decoration when it comes to war? Well, the Roman soldier would wear his helmet with that brilliant red plume when marching, and it would instill, to see a massive Roman armada marching with those helmets, that would instill fear in the heart of the foe. But the Roman soldier would also wear the helmet when parading in the city after a victorious battle or perhaps even getting ready to go out onto the battlefield. And so the same helmet that would instill fear in the heart of the foe would inspire confidence in the heart of the friend. So it was both protective and decorative. And it's interesting when we think of this here, this is also paradoxical. We understand that in Christ we are at peace we are on this side of the once-for-all, all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. We are at peace with God. We are at peace with one another. Yet, we don't live as though it is peacetime. In a certain sense, we live in a wartime environment. And what that means is we live a trimmed life. We live a constrained life. And we li live ready to fight, spiritually speaking. It's been said if you want peace, prepare for war. And I would say that's a good axiomatic statement in general at the physical level, even more so at the spiritual level. And that is part of what Paul is bringing out for us here. And what's fascinating is this is armor that is forged by God, made by God, supplied to you and to me by God. 
And these two elements here, these two of the six that Paul expands on in Ephesians 6, are worn by God, forged by God, supplied by God, and worn by God. Back in Isaiah 59, verse 17, it speaks of God himself. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. So again, these are the two elements that Paul brings out here in this very early writing of 1 Thessalonians. As a helmet, the text continues, the hope of salvation. You may have picked up, we have those three fruits of grace, the holy triad of faith, hope, and love that Paul had already written. He even opened up this letter back in chapter 1, verse 3, with these three fruits of grace. But what's amazing here is what opens the letter as three fruits of grace are here given as three great defenses against the temptation of the deeds of the darkness. And beloved, hope, biblical hope, is not a watered-down, airy-fairy, wishful thinking. Biblical hope is a certain promise from God who cannot lie, does not lie, and will not lie. We can also ask the question, is Paul here talking about salvation from the penalty of sin or salvation from the power of sin or is he talking about salvation from the presence of sin any guesses yes exactly all three all three are true this helmet is salvation already received and salvation confidently expected but the emphasis here is on the future so the salvation confidently expected is the focus this is part of your salvation being nearer than when you first believed. Our salvation is nearer than when we believed. Beloved, dear friend, dear friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, I personally am thrilled you're here with us. We are thrilled. We want you here. We want you to hear the word of God. We pray and hope that you will see something different as you see how we love one another and minister to one another. And understand this, beloved, speaking to you who are in Christ, God took away the guilt of sin so that it wouldn't condemn you. He takes away the power of sin so that it won't rule you. And he will take away the presence of sin so that it will not plague you forever and ever in heaven with him in person. And the kind of alert self-control that we saw as part of that first word balances this future expectation with our present obligation. Again, the primary purpose of eschatological passages, passages talking about the end times, is not the signs and dates. It's not the timing. It's holy living right here, right now for God's glory, for the blessing and encouragement of one another and for our witness to a lost and dying world. As pilgrims, we walk. As witnesses, we go. As athletes, we race. And as soldiers, we stand and fight, spiritually speaking. There's never a ceasefire in this holy war. There's never a detente or peace treaty. There's no temporary truces. You can't dodge the draft, and there's no deferments. And Paul had this almost exact same thread of thought when he later writes, again, to the church in Rome. Romans 13, verses 12 and 13. Again, towards the end of that letter, Paul said, Lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Beloved, that's all part of your security, your quality, your security. The third word of great encouragement and edification is your destiny in Christ. Remember, as we study this letter. Remember the original context. It began, Paul was addressing a concern that these fledgling Thessalonian believers had. A number, even though this is a church, these are converts that are only months old, maybe several months old for the earliest ones. Some of them have died, uh, perhaps of natural causes. Surely, probably some of them died because of their faith. And these Thessalonian believers, back in chapter 4, Paul answered them originally, were concerned. Will our departed loved ones in Christ, will they, because they aren't here when he comes back again, will they suffer somehow? Will they endure God's judgment? Will they miss out in some way, be second-class citizens? And Paul answered that originally at the end of chapter 4. But Paul wraps up his answer here in verses 9 through 10. Because Paul, this is the mighty apostle Paul. But Paul is a human being. He understands that in the soul-crushing moments of loss, nothing can replace the Word of God. You may be ministering to a brother or sister or a neighbor or a friend in the soul-crushing moment of the loss of a loved one. Your presence is necessary. Your silence is necessary. Your tears, your hugs are necessary. And needed and appropriate. But, beloved, nothing can replace the word of God as the balm for the grieving soul. And with that in mind, what Paul does here, he addresses these very, very personal needs. And it is pastoral and it is theological. Because salvation has two dimensions. Positive and negative. There is a rescue from and a deliverance Two, even flowing in the same vein, swimming in the same stream, as we talked about repentance before. In true salvation, there's a rescue from something and a deliverance to something. Our rescue from something, we saw in the first five verses that the fierce and terrible day of the Lord is coming. The crack of doom will sound. An account will be given where supreme law will be backed up by final judgment. That's why Paul says, for, at the beginning of verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath. God has not destined us for wrath. Now, does that mean that God is not a God of wrath? Does that mean that God will ignore sin? One Croatian theologian used to think this way until he experienced the brutal ethnically based Yugoslav wars in the 90s. people had committed horrific atrocities, savage acts against their neighbors and countrymen. And in light of that, he wrote this, whereas before, he kind of went away from the idea of thinking that God was a God of wrath. And this is what he wrote by virtue of his experience of the savagery of man. He said this, quote, My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I came. 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. 
I'll pause on the quote here. We can think of the, the savage terrorist acts of Hamas in the nation of Israel. Just an outpouring of the wickedness of the sin and heart of man remembering at the same time that were it not for the grace of God, the restraining power of God, the transforming power of the newness of life that we have, and even the providential restraining forces we have here, I could just as much commit the very same acts of atrocity. But back here in the quote, the Croatian theologian continues, or think of Rwanda, and by the way, when I say that, I think you understand in no way, shape, or form am I minimizing the evil wickedness and the savagery of those acts, nor at the human level what should take place. But what takes place or not, we'll even get to more here because God is the ultimate judge. Far enough on that digression, let's get back in the quote. Or think of Rwanda. In the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to this carnage? By acting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them, end quote? All right, excuse me, uh, one more quote. Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? He finishes, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Now it's end quote. Beloved, dear friend, how can we understand truly anything about God's love if we don't have some understanding of God's hate? God's hatred of sin. How can we understand his grace if we don't understand his law? How can we understand forgiveness if we don't have some measure of understanding of the just penalty against my sin, against our sin? We can't seek grace and salvation. You won't, dear friend, seek grace and salvation unless you understand at some level the terror of the wrath of God. And beloved, Dear friend, wrath is God's settled fury. It's his righteous anger and his fierce judgment. A major part of God's goodness is this. He will judge the atrocities of the Holocaust and Hamas. He will judge every murder. He will judge every rape. The day of the Lord will be a day of fury. As I mentioned last week, wrath in Scripture is ex used exclusively to refer to God's judgment on unbelievers. Never, it's never used regarding believers. That's why Paul even said when he was commending this young church back in chapter 1, verse 10, that they were following and awaiting Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And by the way, he says, deliver, will deliver us, is delivering us from the wrath to come, not through the wrath to come. Which means, if you have a post-tribulational, premillennial, eschatological perspective, you need to rewind the tape and put some new information in there. But that's a side topic. What does the text say here? It says, God has not destined us for wrath. What does the text not say here? It does not say God has destined them for wrath. Wrath. So when we think of the great contrast between us and them, we want to be careful. This is not double predestination. And this is something that could take 
a couple different sermons to cover. When I preached through Malachi, one of the messages in Malachi chapter 1, I expanded on this in greater detail. But understand this, all of humanity is in sin. We're all born sinners. All of humanity is like a massive herd headed towards the cliff of judgment. God sovereignly chooses to rescue some. Back in chapter 1, I think it's verse 5, he talked about God's election of us. So God sovereignly chose to rescue some, and God sovereignly chose to pass over others. The point here is our our salvation is undeserved. It's part of God's grace and mercy. The condemnation, the destruction, the judgment is deserved. Salvation is because God. Condemnation, destruction is because man. And we could go on from there, but I'll leave that for your consideration. So again, it says here, we are not destined for wrath. We don't read in the text and say God destines them for wrath, especially in the same way that he destines us for salvation. The story was told of a man that lived on Long Island, and he purchased a very expensive and very fine barometer. It was delivered to his house, And the day that he got it, he unwrapped it, and he took the barometer out, and he noticed that the needle was stuck on hurricane. He looked at it, he even tried to shake it a few times to see if he could dislodge the needle. And I don't think that's a very good idea to do with with an expensive piece of electronic equipment, but that's the way the story goes. It stayed stuck on hurricane. So he wrote an angry, scorching letter that he placed in a letter to the manufacturer. He went to bed that night, woke up the next morning, drove from Long Island into the city, mailed the letter, drove home that night, and when he got home, there was no home, there was no house, because a hurricane had hit. Now, the point is, the barometer was right. The warning was clear, and he ignored it. Dear friend, The application is this, the needle of God's prophetic warning is pointing to hurricane, and it's been this way for 2,000 years. Sin may go unpunished for a time. Sin may go unpunished for a lifetime, but all sin will be dealt with. All sin will be punished in one of two ways. There is rapture and reunion, and there is wrath, and never the twain shall meet. Beloved, Because we are not in the darkness, we will not be overtaken by the outpouring of the wrath of God. That is what we have been rescued from. Next, we go to what we have been delivered to. In Christ, we are rescued from guilt, pollution, and punishment. And we are delivered to, and here's the great contrast, the third one, verse 9 in the middle, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, he didn't say we are destined for salvation. He said we are destined for obtaining salvation. The end goal, the permanent dwelling and abiding forever and ever in heaven, that is great, but Paul emphasizes not just the goal, but even the process, the process of realizing it, obtaining it, gaining it. For obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, the text continues, who died for us. This is the earliest occurrence in Paul's writings of the specific language of Christ dying for us. It's questionable whether he wrote 1 Thessalonians 1 or Galatians, but in either case, this is the earliest appearance of that equation. Beloved, dear friend, this is salvation appointed by the Father, salvation accomplished by the Son, 
and salvation that is anchored by the Spirit. His death is our life. He died our death. He died your death so that you might live his life. That is what Paul is bringing out here. Verse 10, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. And here Paul goes back to his original imagery of being awake and asleep back in chapter 4. So whether or not we are alive or dead, we may in Christ, we may live together with him. And beloved, that is the end game, that is the end goal. We love and anticipate the reunion that, we, that Paul wrote of back in chapter 4. The no pain, no sorrow, no mourning, no crying, no sin that we read in our scripture reading in Revelation 21. The reunion, all of that will be glorious and wonderful. But he is the ultimate goal. He's not just the means to the end. He is. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but through him. He is the means, but he is ultimately the end. That is the goal, to be with him forever and ever. And that is the future, and that should impact the present. So when he talks about living together with him, this is both our future life with Christ and our present life in Christ. That's why Paul wrote again to the church in Rome, 14, Romans 14, verse 9, To this end Christ died and lived again, so that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. And beloved, dear friend, Back in the context of the Thessalonians, departed loved ones, this is where tears lose their bitterness. Some 13 years ago, when I was ushering my beloved Margie into the presence of the Lord, I would read scripture to her and I would personalize the passages. And this is basically God saying, quote, Margie Miller, I have not destined you for wrath. What you are facing now is not wrath. You are destined, you are appointed by my hand, by the hand of the Almighty God for salvation, so that whether you are awake or die of cancer, you'll live together with him. Beloved, when the terrible wrath of God breaks over the world, you will be safe. He is your rock. He is your refuge. In the same way, when Noah and his wife and sons and wives were in the ark, they were safe from the floodwaters of God's judgment. So also you in Christ are safe from the floodwaters of his terrible fury and wrath. Maybe you've seen or heard the little ditty. You kind of have to see it, not just hear it. But no Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. K-N-O-W Jesus, K-N-O-W peace. N-O Jesus, N-O peace. Well, the yang to that ying is no Jesus, no wrath. No Jesus, you will no wrath. K-N-O-W, Jesus, N-O, wrath. N-O, Jesus, you will, K-N-O-W, wrath. Dear friend, if you're here still in your sin, God's righteous judgment is hanging over your head. His fierce wrath is like waters accumulated behind a great dam. If he should withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and fiery floods of his wrath would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power, as Jonathan Edwards put it. You see, these words of encouragement don't apply to you, but they can 
they can apply to you. Would you, dear friend, like these words to be spoken to you by Almighty God, where he would say to you personally, I have not destined you for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Lord Jesus Christ, who died for you, so that when you die, you will live together with him. That would be knowing Jesus Christ as your rescuer, not as your executioner. Those are the two pictures. That is the final great sharp contrast. So, this is beloved in Christ. This is your quality, your security, your destiny. Finally, in verse 11, it's our responsibility. And how does Paul conclude his end times exhortation? A panicked warning? The end is near, the end is near. Run for the hills. No, he says, this is how you live in the present in light of the future. Our eschatological hope is not an excuse for the lazy. It's an incentive for the hardworking. There's work to be done because there is a storm that's coming. And what we have here in verse 11 is eschatology end times is not a source of embitterment. It's a source of encouragement and edification. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build up one another. This is the outflow, the manifestation of the love that we saw back in the breastplate in verse 8. That love must be expressed in relationship to one another. One another, the mutual activity. You see, there's, there's a you and there's a me, and there's this passage right in between us. And this describes a healthy and flourishing church. Commentator John Stott said this, quote, how then is this basic ministry of comfort, encouragement, and upbuilding to be exercised? Doubtless in many ways, ranging from the simplicities of a smile, a hug, or a squeezed hand, to the costliness of patient listening, sympathy, and friendship. Yet, here in 1 Thessalonians, we need to come back to Paul's emphasis on these words back in chapter 4, verse 18. So here, he wraps it up, chapter 5, verse 11 encourage one another and build up one another. Back in verse 18 of chapter 4, he said, therefore, comfort one another with these words, with these words. This is the same dynamic as when Paul will write some years later to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 4, 29, let only such a word proceed from your mouth as is good for edification, the building up, according to the need of the moment, so that it may give grace to those who hear. Beloved, I need, you need, we need the encouragement and the strengthening of the body of Christ to prepare for the coming of Christ. And that's why I love how Paul finishes, just as you also are doing. He gives one more word of encouragement and commendation to this model church. Beloved, model example church, Santan Bible Church. You are different. We are different. Therefore, light up your lamps, gird up your loins, and act different. And I'm preaching and speaking to myself first and foremost. You see, a healthy church, a flourishing church, is a church filled with strength, hope, and joy. And it begins with the leaders. But we'll come to that next week in verse 12 and forward. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your life, for your teaching, for your word, for your death, for your 
resurrection for your ascension. Thank you for the promise and the certainty of your coming. Thank you for the joy and the hope that we have in what awaits us. Lord, for anyone here this morning that doesn't have that joy, doesn't have that hope, doesn't have those promises, Lord, let them Feel that conviction. Let them feel the weight of your judgment that is looming over them and help them understand that if they just come to you and ask for forgiveness and place their faith in you alone and trust in you alone, that you would receive them, make them a new creature and all these great good words of comfort, encouragement, and edification would apply equally to them. And just for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.